Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, How to Study the Bible, Part 3. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. What I want to say was something for example, brother, how come that's so important? Well, you know, you can't just depend upon getting spoon-fed all of your life. You've got to be able to get into the Word yourself. And the only way you can do that is if you effectively know how to study the Bible. And we've used a scripture out of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where it says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that scripture right there says study. The word study is different than just reading. It implies some kind of an orderly approach to it. And then also it says that you have to study or have an orderly approach to the Word of God to be able to rightly divide it. And if there is ever anything that needs to be rightly divided, it's the Word of God. There's a lot of people that listen to just enough to get them in trouble. And they know just enough to get them in trouble. And, you know, we've been talking with all of these ministers. We, they all give them their Rhema stories and stuff, you know. And we've seen some powerful ministries that have come out of Rhema, some great things that the Lord has done. But, you know, some people are mistaken in thinking that if you graduate from Rhema, if it's from Faith Christian Fellowships Academy or whatever, that you're an instant minister. A school never made a minister. All it does is help a minister fulfill what God has already made him. And many people don't understand that, and so they expect anybody that comes from Rhema just to be with it. And there's some real duds that come out of there, amen? <laughs> Praise God, we don't have any here. <laughs> Praise God for the good things that the Lord's done. But what I'm saying is, you see, many people think that it's just a, a, a knowledge of the Word. You can get a knowledge of the Word that'll, that'll destroy you. You need to be able to rightly divide it. And I've heard some people go out and take some truths that I agreed with what they said, but boy, they can just butcher it and they use it like a sword or like condemnation, a club over somebody's head, and that's not what God intended. And so anyway, the way that you rightly divide the word of truth is by study. So if there is an orderly approach to the word, which there is, then praise God, we need to know what it is. And so we've just been sharing some things that the Lord has shared with me. And as I've already said, a lot of the terminology that I'm using are not inspired they're just names that I've given to things that are principles, more or less, that, you know, don't have a specific name in the Word of God. And so don't make a doctrine out of any of these things. This is just something to help you, and it'll benefit you. And we've already covered quite a bit about different methods of studying the Word. And again, I believe that one of the most basic things the Lord ever showed me about how to study is not to just single up on one method, but to combine them all. And it's important that you realize that you're going to be lopsided if you depend upon any one method of Bible study. And many people have been led astray thinking that if they read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation once a year, that they're in the Word of God and that they're going to have it. And I guarantee that's not study. That's only part of study. It is not it in itself. You need more knowledge and more of an approach to the Word of God than that. And so it's important that you learn how to combine all of those different things. And so that's one of the points that we've really dealt on. We've talked about different methods of Bible study, for instance, like a systematic Bible study, topical Bible study, meditating the Word of God is Bible study. And we ministered on that, I guess, uh, Tuesday night. And I tell you, that is really beneficial. If you miss that, you need to get one of those tapes. Because it's important that you learn the importance of meditating God's Word, that that is being in the Word of God. We talked about, like, for instance, cross and, and uh, word studies and things like that. What I want to deal with today is some principles that you have to know that to be able to rightly divide the word of truth. There, one of the most important things that you'll ever learn is that the word of God comes in stages or, for instance, out of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 10. Let's look at this scripture. Isaiah 28, let's start reading with verse 9. 
it says, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? That's what we're talking about. How do you get the knowledge and the doctrine from the Word of God? It's them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And this is a principle that you'll find many other places in the Word of God. Let's just use one more over here in the book of Exodus. I believe it's chapter 23 that will give you the same uh, principle listed right here. In Exodus chapter 23, in verse 26, it says, There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in that land. The number of thy days will I fulfill. The Lord is promising to the children of Israel here about how he's going to give them the land of Canaan, how they can enter in and possess it. And he's giving them all these promises, blessings, about how he's going to give them total victory. And it says, I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come, and I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee, and I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the... Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. And he goes on and talks about it. But this is one of the principles in the Word of God that you see, he couldn't give them the land instantly. Many of us want instantaneous things, amen? We want instantaneous results. We want to be able to come to this service, and after this service, you got it all worked out. You'll never have another problem the rest of your life, amen? You're going to really receive this morning. Well, there's a lot of people that come with that attitude, and praise God, you should come expecting, but you need to realize that God's revelations, everything that God gives comes in stages. Nobody hit instant maturity. Now, you can have an instant experience, but that experience, if it's going to produce like it should, will take a lifetime of living and going over and maturing and stuff to be able to bring you into the right position. Like, for instance, in 1968, March the 24th, my life got changed. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't relate back to what happened to me at midnight that night. Boy, God transformed me. But did you know that it has been a growth process? I did not immediately begin to start seeing results. I was changed on the inside. But there's been a growth process of learning how to walk, and I'm still growing, praise the Lord. And it's the same Thanks. See, people are always wanting to enter in and obtain the victory, but the Lord says that he wouldn't give the Israelites the victory immediately because if he had, they wouldn't have been able to occupy the cities. It would have been vacated. They wouldn't have been able to recultivate the field. They wouldn't have been able to repair the land from war that quick, and they simply would have lost out. Instead of it being a land of milk and honey, it would have been a land of thorns and thistles and problems. And so God drove them out little by little, or in other words, as they were able to possess it. And this is one of the greatest things, if people would just understand this. I used to say, God, how come I'm not ministering to millions of people? How come I'm not this? And I'd go listen to somebody. And I'm not saying this in a critic. My attitude, I believe, was right on it. I would sit there and listen to them. I'd receive from what they'd say, but I'd say, Lord, I know those things. I said, I can be sharing some of those things with somebody. And you know now, I'm just real glad that the Lord didn't stick me out there. Because you know what? I'd have blown the whole thing. And I'm convinced that one reason we're still growing at a slow rate compared to where I know I'm going to be one of these days, we are still growing, and praise God, the Lord's not going to push me out there, allow me to be there before I can uh, uh, partake of it. Amen? You may be real hungry and want to eat the whole thing all at one time, but you know, if you've got wisdom, you'll quit when you start getting full. Right? And so it's the same thing with the Lord. You have to take it little by little. You have to grow and mature under these things. And specifically what we're talking about, Bible study, out of Isaiah 28.10, it says the same thing, that line, uh, precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, line upon line, line upon line. In other words, there are what I call like a stair-step revelation in the Word of God. 
You have to start out with learning the basics and grow and build and build and build in your revelation knowledge of the Word of God. Now, the reason that this is so important, and I know that I've experienced this, if you will just think about it, you've experienced this exact same thing. You may not have known what was happening. But there's a say, for instance, a certain time that you run across some subject, somebody buttonholes you and, and starts uh, throwing questions at you, and you're left without an answer. And so, man, you're determined. I'm going to go to the Word of God, and I'm going to find out what the answer is, and I'm going to get the Word of God on this subject, and man, you start fasting, praying, pressing in, doing everything you know how to get that revelation, and it simply doesn't come. Now, I've been there. I've been there when, boy, I was just determined I was going to come up with something, and I didn't, and I couldn't, and I was wondering, God, what's wrong? Don't you want me to know the revelation about this? And I've seen some people that have been discouraged because they weren't able to get revelation on a specific subject. Things just weren't fitting together, and they begin to throw up their hands and say, what's the problem? How come God won't reveal? I just can't get in the Word of God. And many people get discouraged and fall by the wayside. But you see what it is? No truth from God's Word is ever independent of another truth. There is no truth in God's Word that stands alone. Everything complements and works and intertwines with each other. And this has been one of the big problems is that people are always trying to take some truth out that has been ministered to them and single up on it. Like, for instance... And I'm not throwing stones at anybody, okay? But I've heard of people that have deliverance ministries. You know, God never called anybody to a deliverance ministry. You can't find it in the Word of God. There is no gift of casting out demons. Amen or oh me? Amen. That's the truth. Now, there's some people, like, for instance, Norval Hayes, this is an example, that he has exercised himself to a large degree in the area of casting out demons. And I've heard people talk about this, that at Raymond and other places, you know, something will happen, some demonic manifestation, somebody will go to doing something, and they'll say, Norval, Norval, and here's Hagen and Copeland and everybody sitting on the platform, and they're yelling for Norval. Well, now, there's nothing wrong with that because Norval's developed himself in that area. But many people misinterpret that and think God's given him a special ministry in that area. No, God gave him the same thing he gave everybody else. Norval's developed himself in that area. And there's nothing wrong with recognizing his development and using it. But many people see misinterpret that and think, well, this isn't my calling. Well, the Bible says out of Mark chapter 16 that these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. Every born-again believer has a deliverance ministry, but nobody's called singly to that. But some people see single out a certain area. Maybe, for instance, they had a tremendous amount of problems with demons. And so it's going to always be an area that is really close to their heart. See, when they get deliverance. And they may be proficient in that area, but they shouldn't just limit themselves and single themselves up to it. Amen? Now, this is not to exclude the fact that, like, say, for instance, I'm called to be a teacher. That's, I'm not saying that I ought to try and do what everybody else is doing. There are specific callings and anointings, but one of the callings is not a deliverance ministry. But, see, many people have got into that area because they have sat there and they've developed themselves. They've pulled one truth out of the Bible. And, of course, I'm not using Norval Hayes as an example because Norval Hayes is developing himself in all areas. He's not a bad example, but the way some people react to him is bad. Everybody get what I'm saying? Don't want you going out here misquoting me. Amen. But there are many people that single up upon a certain issue. Like, for instance, there was a man that came through and ministered for me one time, and I had him minister three different times over a period of different months, and every time that guy ministered on healing. I duplicated all of his tapes for him. He used to send his tapes to me, and I'd duplicate tapes and mail them out for him and things like that to help him get started. Every tape he had was on healing. 
That's all that brother knew was healing. I don't think he knew anything except healing. He believed in healing. That's all that he preached. As a result, he saw a lot of people heal. It's good. I'm not knocking that. But you see, again, you see, he was trying to make one Bible truth stand independent of others. And there's one thing that I've been learning is that there's a lot of people we've been praying for who are sick that the problem isn't physical. The problem is their spiritual state. That it's because of the strife that's in their home, like James 3.16, where envy and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. And the reason that you've got that problem is because you're in so much strife. Strife is the open door, and you can get that sickness out of that body, but as long as strife remains, it's always going to be coming back in. And so if you're going to be effective in the area of healing, you cannot single up a spe- I mean, solely upon healing. You've got to realize that you've got to take other truths. They all intermingle with each other. And so, the point that I'm making through this is, since the Word of God all fits together, there is nothing that stands independent, there are certain times when you may be pressing for a revelation about a certain subject that you aren't capable of receiving that revelation yet. If you were to get it, you would abuse it and destroy it because you don't have the supporting truths that go along with it to put it in a proper balance and give it to its proper foundation. Can you all see that? instances in my life, I can show you when, for instance, uh, something came up and I began to seek on a certain subject and ask God for revelation, and regardless of how much I press, sometimes the more I study, the confuseder I got. That's not a good word, I know, but that's about the way I was. More confused I got. And it just seemed like all the scriptures were just making it more confusing instead of answering things. And, and what I had to do was just set, set that thing on the shelf. Now, that did not mean that I quit seeking and believing that God was going to give me revelation, but I had to just set it aside for a while and say, Father, there must be something else I need to know. And as I continued to study the Word on what I considered to be something that was totally unrelated, all of a sudden, the Lord would start teaching me something, and maybe that would lead to something else. And, so, and all of a sudden, I'd find a key that I found out was the thing that unlocked this thing, see, that I had sitting on the shelf. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, you have a piece of a puzzle. Maybe you got it in four pieces, but they don't fit together. But then you find the one missing piece and everything just all comes together. And there are many things in God's Word that are dependent upon other revelations that you cannot understand them until you get the foundation things that go underneath it. And many people are making this kind of mistake in studying the Word of God. They are pressing for some revelation. They're going to come up with an answer whether God gives them one or not. Amen. They're determined. And brothers and sisters, you can't approach the Word of God that way. If you run into a snag, lay it aside and go on. Many people are hung up over things. You know, like Wayne, I've been talking about the ninth chapter of Romans. He was asking me, what do I, what's the answer to that? And I told him, I don't know. And he told me he didn't know. <laughs> so we're depending on Bob Yandian to come preach it to us, amen, <laughs> and explain it all to us. But you see, I haven't stumbled over Romans chapter 9 because I can see enough in it that I realize it's not contradictory, it's no problem to me, and I'm just leaving it there and praise God, I'm going to pick up Revelation on that. And I just keep on going. And did you know things begin to fall in line as you build a foundation, but many people aren't aware of this. I'm also convinced that this is one reason that there's been so many false doctrines because somebody has pushed for Revelation in a certain area. God couldn't give it to them because they weren't capable of receiving it, and they determined they was going to get it, so when they couldn't get it from the Word, they turned to a commentary, they turned to this, they turned to something else, they picked the best of all of the choices and say, this must be it. 
and they lock it in, they begin to preach it. And I tell you, one detrimental thing in studying the Word of God is to form an opinion that you have not got through revelation knowledge, that God hadn't quickened to you. Because once you form an opinion and once you get something rooted in you, it's harder to uproot it than it is to properly form the right attitude in the first place. One of the most beneficial things you'll ever do in studying the Word of God is to say, I don't know. Now, that's not a bad confession in the sense that I'm violating the Bible where it says you know all things. I know it in my spirit, but up here I hadn't got it yet, amen. It's just not worked out. I got it here. I'm not going to confess that I can't know that it, the revelation isn't there, but I do need to sometimes, when somebody asks you a question, just tell them, I don't know. Somebody was asking me a question out here last night about... Uh, book of Revelation, and they asked for some of my series of tapes on Revelation, and I told them I don't circulate these tapes. And they said, well, we got to have this one. So I said, well, okay. And I let him have it. And he says, well, what about this? And he started asking me all these questions. I said, I don't know. And he looked at me like, you're supposed to know. And I said, look, I can tell you all of what the commentaries say. I can tell you what all the Bible schools preach about. I could rattle off to you for 30 minutes about that, but I don't know. Amen. And you know, that's beneficial. And I've had a lot of people that have responded positively to that and have appreciated you ministering what you do know and not ministering what you don't know. And I guarantee you, Wayne, any of these pastors, Bruce and others can tell you that upon a pastor there is a lot of pressure because you're continually being drawn upon to give somebody an answer. And it would be nice sometimes to be able to just rattle off some of these things and give them an answer, but it's better if you just sit there and stick to what you know and what you don't know say, I don't know. Amen. It's really beneficial, and it'll help you tremendously in your study of the Word of God. So this is one important thing that you've got to remember is that everything that God gives you is line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, and you are going to receive it in stages of revelation. You know, there was a friend of mine, his name was John, and he came to uh, Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and started to school there. And he prayed about it. God told him specifically to go to Oklahoma Baptist University. Got a scholarship. Everything worked out. He was there for a third of what it should have cost. He just knew that God was in it. Well, he wasn't there two months before God told him to leave Oklahoma Baptist University and come to Seagaville, Texas, where we were, and sit under the Word and get taught. And he just couldn't receive that. And he, you know, he struggled with it, and he says, I just can't receive this because he was sure God had told him to come. And then two months later, God was telling him to leave. So as he kept praying about it, the answer finally was God spoke to him, and he said, John, out of the two choices that you gave me, Berkeley or OBU, OPU was the best of the two choices. But he says, if you'd have waited on me and have just asked me, I'd have told you in the first place. And you see, this is one of the problems that many people make with the uh, approach to the Word of God. They say, Lord, which is right, this doctrine or this doctrine? Well, you're only giving the Lord a couple of choices. What if none of them right? Amen. Many people say, are the Pentecostals right or are these ultra-fundamentalists right? Well, what if neither one of them are right? You're in trouble. Y'all see that? The truth that the Lord's given me, I believe, about, you know, the, the controversy between save, loss, save, loss, save, loss, save, loss, backslide, get saved, backslide, get saved every day, and the ones over here that say you're saved all of the time. I had a tremendous time dealing with that. I mean, I studied that for years and for years and for years. I'd take the Scriptures on one hand and study them, and then I'd take the Scriptures on the other side and study them, and just go back and forth and back and forth. And as a result, I'd get confused. I couldn't come to a conclusion. And finally, when I threw all of them out and said, I don't care what what the Word says, whether it supports this or that, I just want to know what it says. And when I got that attitude, the Lord, I believe, showed me the truth, and it's neither one of them. Amen? And that's the reason I couldn't receive revelation on it, because it wasn't either one of those. And many people are missing it. Amen? 
So anyway, that goes along with the line upon line, precept upon precept. Now, what are some of these fundamental truths that the Lord gives you? Well, Wayne's already dealt with one of them yesterday morning, for instance, when he was talking about love. That was powerful ministry. And that's one of the fu- fundamental things that you have to learn, like what Claudia was singing this morning, you know, about the nature of God. One of the basic things that you ought to start studying in the Word of God is the nature of God. Many people have such a warped impression of God. We think that he's a God of hatred, a God of anger, a God of wrath, of all of these things. We think that God's the source of our problem. And there's many people that their Bible study is actually detrimental because they have heard a perverted portrayal of what God is really like, and every time they read anything in the Word of God, they read it negatively. They read that the wrath of God's coming on. Like, for instance, out of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about chastisement. That could just send some people into a tailspin because, you see, they don't have the fundamental foundational truth about the nature of God, and to them, chastisement means cancer. To them, it means defeat. To them, it means total failure, and they are afraid that that's the way God's going to deal with them. Well, now, you aren't going to be able to prosper from uh, Hebrews chapter 12 until you learn that that is not the nature of God. So you need to start learning things. Some of the most fundamental foundation truths are about the nature of God, about that God is love, out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And as you learn this, then when you read something that looks contrary, you can say, how does this fit into here? Like, for instance, there are literally thousands and thousands of scriptures about the wrath of God in the Bible. There are literally thousands of examples about how the wrath of God was poured upon people. And there are some people today that preach that God is total love, and as a result, there is no such thing as wrath, that God wasn't the one that sent the death angel upon the land of Egypt. God didn't do any of these things. And you see, that, that begins to be contradictory with other scriptures. But the proper way, if you'll sit there and say, now what is the true attitude about this? You'll find out that love also has to have hate in it. For instance, if a man says that he loves his wife, but if he loves her so much that he sees somebody come up and beat her up and rob her and do all this, and he just stands there and says, boy, I really love my wife. I sure do love my wife. And he sees her getting beat up and robbed and stolen from all of these things, and he says, I love my wife. Well, you know, the Bible says that faith that works is dead. That guy doesn't really love his wife. True kind of love has to also have hatred in it. And you can read this in the Bible out of, for instance, Proverbs. Many places in Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is to hate evil. Out of Romans chapter 12, verse 9, it says, Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Let your love be without dissimulation. And it puts those all in the same verse right there. Love being without dissimulation and hating that which is evil. It puts all of those things in the same category. Love and hate, you see, go together. You can't truly love somebody if you don't hate anything that is coming against them to destroy them. So God's nature is love, but a part of love is hate. And God hates the devil that has come against his creation to destroy it. He hates the evil, and those who will not respond to him, I guarantee you there is a wrath of God. And the book of Revelation isn't Satan doing it, it's God doing it. And some people have a hard time harmonizing that, but when you understand this about God's kind of love, that brothers and sisters, there is coming a payday for those who would not accept the the atonement that the Lord Jesus Christ made. There is still justice, and there is still a hatred against those who have chosen to trod underfoot. God's people. You know, that's something, boy, I could spend a lot of time on because there's a lot of people today that under this sloppy agape don't believe that. And they don't operate in it. And as a result, you know, there are some people that talk about, oh, I think that when we stand before the Lord, we're going to just weep to see the, the lost cast into hell. Did you know in the book of Revelation it's the exact opposite? Those people are sitting there, praise God, you judge righteously. They've shed the blood of saints and you've given them blood to drink. 
Isn't that different? Quiet. Now, am I preaching that you're supposed to rejoice over seeing your enemies fail? No. He said, you know, not to rejoice when you see somebody fail. But when the last ultimate judgment comes, when there is no longer any day of grace, and when we stand before the Lord, God's kind of love revealed in us, brothers and sisters, we are going to rejoice to see God's Word triumph. Those that chose to rebel against it, we are going to rejoice to see God's Word seal their doom. We're going to rejoice to see truth triumph over evil. That's a part of love. It really is. Do you know, there was a man one time that was an alcoholic in uh, Pritchett, Colorado, where I ministered. I went and ministered to that man, sat down and talked to him for hours. And he, of course, was having the DTs when I was over there. And we were trying to deal with him. We ministered to him hour upon hour. Went over there many different times. He even came to church one time and stood up while he was drunk and started testifying about how holy he was and how righteous he is living and everything. And I just went up to him and I said, Brother, I said, that's a lie. And he got mad at me and he said, What do you mean? Who are you, you righteous thing, judging me and telling me I'm wrong? And I said, Look, I'm not judging you. I said, The Bible says if out of 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, that if you say you know me and keep not my commandments, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. And I said, Brother, you had not got any proof of anything you're saying. And boy, the ushers in the back stood up and got ready to come forward and drag him off of me. And, uh, you know, he looked at me and he says, you're right. And he says, I need prayer. And the guy began to mellow under. And I ministered to him, ministered to him, ministered to him. But that guy refused to choose Jesus over his drink. He just hardened himself. He refused it. We dealt with him for a period of six months. And, of course, they'd been dealing with him a long time before I got there. Finally, the guy got in the hospital, and he had pneumonia, five cases of pneumonia. You know, you hear about double pneumonia? Well, he had uh, five cases of all that stuff on top of each other. The guy couldn't breathe. He was laying there gasping for breath. I mean, every breath was a struggle. The doctor said it was impossible for him to live. And they asked me to go pray for him. I went in there not knowing how to pray for him because, see, we had already been praying for him. He had rejected everything we'd ever prayed, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I went in there, and finally I looked at that guy, and all of the people with me, you know, were just heartbroken to see this guy that they'd spent so much time praying for in this condition. And I began to pray for him, but the Lord wouldn't give me freedom to just pray and believe for him to be healed because I know that that person has something to do with it, and that person had rejected God every step of the way. And did you know, finally, I was able to pray, Father, I just believe that your word is true. And I, as I started praying that, I started saying, Father, this guy has rejected you and chose his own way, and I just thank you that the word works. If he's willing to repent, he'll, he'll receive, but if he doesn't, I thank you, Father, that the word works. And you know, I left that place, and they thought I was the most cruel, morbid thing in the world. But I was blessed because this man had been saying, I don't need God. I can make it without God. I'm okay. Drink's not going to get the best of me. I can handle my drink. On and on he went. And boy, I was seeing the effects of sin. I was seeing what the wages of it were. And there was a rejoicing, not at seeing that man suffer, but there was a rejoicing to say, praise God, the Word works. That guy is an evident testimony. He's a bad testimony, but he's a testimony that the Word works. Amen? And I even got to rejoicing over seeing that guy sitting there dying like that. Not seeing him die, but seeing the fact that the Word works. Now, did you all understand that? I hope nobody misunderstands me and misquotes me on all that. But the point that I'm making is, you see, many people don't understand the nature of God. And so they're sitting there continually thinking God's damning everybody. And then on the other hand, there's some people that have only received a partial revelation about the love of God. And they think that God's love means that he's never going to punish anybody. Did you know there's a church of Satan? that's incorporated in Houston, Texas. I think they call it the Church of the Last Judgment. And they worship Satan and they use the Bible to do it with. 
They quote scriptures, and the way they justify it is, Jesus said, love your enemies. Well, who's your enemy? It's the devil. So they love the devil, and they believe that the devil's going to get saved and be converted, and they're worshiping, and they have pictures of Lucifer up there, praying and interceding for Lucifer and worshiping and carrying on. Now, brothers and sisters, somebody like that, they say they're operating in love, but they've missed the true love of God. Amen. There's a wrath and a judgment of God, and many people, because they aren't balancing these things out, are sitting there, and they, they can't explain the book of Revelation. They say that that's the devil going to do these things. Well, it's not the devil putting out the curse on the, during the end times, during the book of Revelation. That's the Lord doing those things, but it's not upon God's people. It's upon the ungodly. Amen. Amen? And you see, some of these just foundational truths would answer questions if we'd begin to gain some just foundation truths in the Word of God and begin to lay some foundations. You've got to have that. Another thing that has been very important in my life, one of the most important things that the Lord's ever shown me that has opened up tremendous things, Claudia referred to it while she was up here singing today, and that is, you know, like we've been hearing so much about faith, but faith has become a work of the law to so many people. And it's got to where faith now is, I think it was Wayne or either uh, Cliff last night that referred to... uh, you know, getting up and having faith contest. I believe this in, and we are, in effect, believing that it was your great ability that brought it to pass. Instead of God's grace, and faith is just your way of receiving something from God. You see, many people have got into deception in the area of faith. Now, that's not to say faith isn't working. Faith works, and faith is real, and anything that's not a faith is sin. Amen? I'm a total believer in faith, but many people don't have a proper understanding of faith because they don't know the difference between Old Testament law and grace. I believe that is one of the most foundational truths in the entire Bible is for you to properly understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And did you know very few people even try? I've heard a lot of people, man, I've heard people on the same radio station I am get up and say, I believe, brother, in being holy and keeping the law and bless God you can't, you know, they get up and say, some of these modern liberalists up here are preaching that you don't have to keep the law and you don't have to do that. I believe you've got to adhere to every one of the Ten Commandments. They preach all of these things. They get up there, you better do this and do that. But did you know I've never met a single person that preached to me about keeping the law that could even tell me what the Ten Commandments were? All I believe you got to live under them, but nobody knows what they are. Hallelujah. Well, let's see. Honor the Lord and your parents and keep the Sabbath and don't kill or steal. What's the others? That's about five. Maybe five is about as good as most people can do. And yet they believe they're supposed to be under it. You see, that's not the truth. Most people that are preaching that don't even believe it. The Old Testament law was a standard and it was never meant for you to live. The law was given to show you how incapable you were of living so that you could sit there and throw yourself over on the Lord instead of getting self-righteous and trusting yourself. The Lord never intended to give the law. He didn't want to give the law because the law kills. Out of uh, Romans chapter 6, it talks about that. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, many other places, it calls it administration of death. It says out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 and 56, that the law is the strength of sin. In Romans chapter 7, I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And it says that the law, which was meant to be good, uh, Satan took occasion by it and deceived me and slew me by it. The law is a ministration of death, brothers and sisters. God never intended for his people to be under it. He did everything he could not to give the law. It was never God's intention to give the law. It was added because of transgressions. And you can read that out of Galatians chapter 3. I'm getting a little off the subject of Bible study, amen, preaching. But anyway, 
It's important that you understand that and that you understand that these were only standards that God gave us for those smug people that thought, well, I'm pretty good. You know, the Bible says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we comparing ourselves among ourselves are not wise. And you see this today. You know, people look around and the homosexuality used to be looked down on and today people are saying, well, everybody's doing it. You know, we got rights. And they're beginning to excuse those kind of things. They compare themselves among themselves and they say, I must be pretty good because look how bad they are. You know, that's human nature. People are always, if you, can't, if you can't do good yourself, one way to achieve is to knock everybody down lower than you. Amen? And you come out on top. Do you know what happens if somebody says something against you? And if they say something to hurt you, you know what the carnal person will do? Well, you sorry, what makes you think you're worthy to criticize me? And you go to whittling that person down. The reason that you do that, whether you understand it or not, is because if you knock them flat of your face, you can get up above them. Amen? <laughs> And that's the basic reason that people do that. It's a defense mechanism to keep them from being put down. They put somebody else down, and that way they look good. They're all the time comparing themselves among themselves. And this is something that was just continually, continually happening. So the reason God gave the law was to sit there and say, All right, you think you've made it? Here's my standard. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. He never gave that so anybody could keep it. You're incapable of keeping the law. He gave it to show you how hopeless you were and so that you'd turn from trusting in yourself and throw yourself on the mercy of God. That's what it says out of Galatians chapter 3, that until faith came, we were shut up, kept under the law unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. It hemmed us up. Every time you got smug and thought, well, I can make it, and you took a step, there was a law condemning you. Every time you turned, whichever direction you turned, you were completely shut up and you had to wait upon the mercy of God. Amen? And that was the purpose of the law. Many people today, you see, believe that we're supposed to keep the law. Man, that's dumb. That's dumb. The Bible, you know, a lot of people don't understand, but there were, only, there were not only blessings of the law, there were curses of the law. And if you're going to live under the law, you're going to receive the curse. Now, Christ redeemed us from the curse, but it's because we aren't operating under the law, we're operating in faith. But did you know there's still a curse? And the person that isn't in Christ Jesus, if they're going to trust their own works, they can receive it. Amen? Well, anyway, I got a little off there, but praise God. The point that I'm trying to make is that, you see, many people don't understand the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant, and so they're trying to mix the two. And Jesus said that you can't put new wine into an old wineskin, else the wineskin, you know, will burst and the wine run out, and both of them will be spoiled. And there are many people that are under tremendous amounts of legalism and condemnation today. Today, They're trying to take the revelation about faith that has been given them and tack it on to a condemnation type of style where they're sitting here and they're taking all the faith principles and they're turning faith into nothing but a work of the law, where, God, I've confessed 500 times, where are you? Why don't you do something? Well, you see, that's the reason your faith isn't working, because you're saying, God, look what I've done. Well, that's not faith. Galatians 3.12 says that the law is not our faith. The law and faith are opposites. The law is simply your effort to attain unto God, pointing to what you've done. Lord, I earned it. In the church, you know, you'll find people that'll come, you'll find a drunk that'll get saved, healed, delivered, baptized, set free, everything will work for him, and some religious person will pipe up, how come that didn't work for me? I've been coming to church, I've been teaching Sunday school, I've tithed, I've been here every time the door's open, I've swept the carpets, I've done this, I've done that, how come God hadn't done it for me? It's because you're looking at, I've done this and I've done that, and that old drunk, he didn't have anything to offer God, and he says, man, I'll just receive it through who Jesus is, and that's right where God wanted him the whole time, amen? That's what God's trying to get you to. But you see, a lot of religious people are taking their old teaching and misconceptions about the world, 
word trying to tack faith and other things onto it, and they simply aren't mixing. And so, praise God, we've got to get some foundation principles established. And if you would do that, then it'll work for you. Another foundation principle is like spirit, soul, and body. And I haven't got time to teach on these. I'm just saying these things so that you can get in and find it out yourself, give you an idea of what I'm talking about. But the thing I believe that opened up the Word, one of the very first things that opened up the Word to me was spirit, soul, and body. Because, you see, when one of the first real major revelations God gave me was about righteousness. But I couldn't accept righteousness until, along with righteousness, I started studying spirit, soul, and body. Because my concept of righteousness, I'd go look in the mirror and I'd say, God, this just can't be righteous. And I'd see what I'd done wrong. I'd look at me and all of my mistakes and I'd say, this, this has got to be in principle. This has got to mean something other than what it says. You see, it's another big mistake people make with the Word of God. They see what God's Word says, then they look to experience to verify God's Word. Now, if you do that, you're going to get into danger. That's how so many false doctrines have gotten started. People say, well, I know the Word says that by His stripes we're healed, but dear old Saint so-and-so prayed, and I got total faith in dear old Saint so-and-so that if anybody believes she did, and since she died, it must not be mean what it says. And that's the reason the doctrines get started is because people actually have more faith in what they've experienced than in what God's Word says. You never interpret God's Word by your experience. You interpret your experience by God's Word. You've got to make the decision listed in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, to let God be true and every man a liar. And you have to sit there and say, Father, I don't care if I die, amen. Your word says, by his stripes we are healed. And I'm going to stand and preach it and believe it because your word says so. Until you can give me further revelation, I'm going to hang on to what I've got. And until you make that kind of a decision, you won't effectively see the word of God work for you. You'll be more moved by what you, your physical realm, what you can see, taste, hear, smell, and feel. So you can't do that. You've always got to Interpret your circumstances by God's Word. Amen? But many people, see, haven't done this, and that's the reason all these kind of doctrines get started, because they tried to believe something, and when they didn't see it working, they backed off of it. Praise the Lord. Where was I? Anybody remember before I got off on that? Huh? Where was I, Jamie? You're my help. Spirit, soul, and body. So see, this is... Thank you. Amen. See, two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. Praise God. That's Ecclesiastes 4.9. And so anyway... When I was trying to study righteousness, I was having trouble with righteousness because I couldn't see it in my flesh. And this is where most of the religions miss it. They preach holiness. But they're preaching physical holiness. Your holiness. Your holiness is not going to get you into heaven. You know, there's a scripture that says, Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And I've heard people stand up and preach that. If you got on a short dress, if you're wearing makeup, if you're doing this and that, you'll never make it. But you see what they're missing is they're looking to that person's holiness instead of looking at Jesus' holiness that has been imputed unto us on the inside. I'm going to make it to heaven, amen, and I'm going to do it with holiness, but not my holiness. It's the holiness that's been given to me, and it's in my spirit, man. But before I understood spirit, soul, and body, I couldn't receive a truth like that because I really was not aware that there was something inside of me other than my body and my inner personality. And my inner personality was definitely not holy. <laughs> But I begin to learn through spirit, soul, and body that I've got a part of me that can't even be touched, felt, or seen in any form or fashion except through the Word. And Ephesians 4.24 says that part is righteous and truly holy. 1 John 4.17, as He is, so are we in this world. Man, I am as He is. I am bone of His bone, flesh of His flesh, according to Ephesians chapter 5, many other places. And God just began to show me I was the righteousness 
of God in him. And the foundation principle that allowed me to see that was spirit, soul, and body. You've got to be able to understand that. You've got to understand that there's a spiritual realm out there and that many of the things, like for instance Ephesians 1.3, where we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You know, most people don't believe that. I can prove to you they don't believe it because they come into church and they say, God bless us. God meet with us today. Why are you praying that when the Bible says that you've already been blessed? The reason you pray is because you don't believe that God meant what he said. Amen. You believe it's in principle or something. But no, it's a reality. It's a spiritual reality. God is here today because His Word says that He's here. Whether you see Him manifest is dependent upon what you and I do. Whether we put ourselves in agreement and speak God's Word and get into the spiritual realm. But God is constant. God's here in all of His glory and power. He's here to deliver, to set free, to heal, to do anything. And whether you see it or not has nothing to do with whether God is here. It just has to do with whether people can tag, uh, tap into it and receive from it or not. Amen? And when you begin to understand that, it takes away all kinds of problems. I don't ever ask God to bless the service anymore. I know He wants to bless it more than I want it blessed. I just get in and start doing what God said to do, amen. Get in and start speaking His Word, and the anointing and the blessings of God begin to flow. Boy, it takes all the struggle away. Wayne and I were talking uh, yesterday or something about how it, you know we were taught all of these preconceived ideas about how you can't eat before you minister and about how you can't do this and you can't do that. All these little standards that people have put down. And whether people realize it, it's easy to come under a system of law about that. That, you know, God just can't use me if I don't spend, you know, uh, the hour right in front of where I minister. Staying totally in the Word. Now, that's good. I'm not minimizing being in the Word. If you want to spend the hour before you minister in the Word, it's certainly going to benefit you. But if you make a law out of it, you can actually make that a detrimental thing. You can actually come under a bondage that if you don't spend an hour right before you minister in the Word, if somebody came in and needed to be raised from the dead, I ain't got time for you. I'm in the Word. Amen? Just like the religious scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites that passed by the man that was injured on the side of the road and they had to take the old dirty Samaritan that wasn't in a hurry to go to church, amen, to do the Lord's work because the others were too busy getting to church. They didn't have time to stop. They'd have been late. You know, I've been on my way to services before and seen somebody with car trouble and stopped and helped them and I was late to my own service. Some people think that's terrible. Well, you know, you need to just minister along the way, amen. You don't need to be too busy to do what God wants you to do. But as a result, anyway, there's a lot of... Uh, where was I again, Jamie? I forgot. <laughs> don't ask her this time. I don't know how I got sidetracked. Praise God. It's talking about spirit, soul, and body. I was talking about how that we have certain standards that you've got to do this before you minister. When I begin to realize that God has already blessed me with all spiritual blessings, when I found out, it says out of 1 John 2, 27, that He has anointed me, and the anointing which I have received of Him abides within me. I ha I've learned to quit begging for the anointing, which is actually a statement of unbelief, and start quoting Luke 4.18 that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and it has taken the struggle out of ministry. No longer do I sit there and come into a ministry, God, are you going to bless it? God, are you going to use it? God, is it going to work? And instead, it is, it is fun to minister, amen, because I've learned some basic truths. Because I've learned that God's always wanting to minister. And if I don't see God's ministry, it's not God's fault. It's not because I didn't do this or that. Amen. It's Satan somewhere or another came in and I allowed it, you allowed it, or something else. But I know it's God's will and I can just start pressing in that area and keep putting out the Word until we break through. Amen. Amen. And it's taken all the struggle out of it. I just enjoy ministering. I get up, I'll minister at the drop of a hat and drop my hat to minister. Amen. Yeah.
I have some fundamental truths that underlie. And then righteousness was another thing. Like after I received spirit, soul, and body, righteousness literally transformed my life. I was talking to Gwen yesterday, and she said that that's what opened her up to, and that's what really began a tremendous move in her life. Because, you see, I was always taught that I was ungodly, and when I began to realize who I was in Christ Jesus and that God loved me, it opened things up. And once you get some of these foundation principles established and rooted in you, you will be able to discern between what's right and wrong. Do you know? When you stand and listen to a person minister, I don't care how they say it, how fancy they are in their speaking, if they are ministering something that is contrary to righteousness, that is ministering condemnation to you, the Bible says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. You can reject that. Whether you know exactly what they're talking about or not, you can reject it on the basis that it has violated some of the foundation principles that God has given you. And you see, you can begin to start getting established after you learn some of these foundation principles. So the reason I brought all of this out is to show you this, that, that the Word of God, Revelation, comes line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. You've got to start with foundation structures, and some of the things that you may be really seeking God about simply are not going to be revealed unto you until you get supportive truths that go along with it. Another scripture that is right along this line, let's look over here in uh, James chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 16, this will kind of uh, verify all of the things we've been saying along these lines. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, this has given us a key to the wisdom of God. The wisdom that is from above, which the Word of God, is the wisdom of God. You can read that out of uh, Luke chapter 11, where Jesus quoted from an Old Testament scripture, and he says, As also saith the wisdom of God, and then he quoted the Old Testament scripture. So Jesus used the word wisdom and word of God interchangeably. The Word of God is the wisdom of God. And so, the Word of God, the revelation that comes from it, is first of all pure. And this could fit in with a lot of the things we've been saying. In other words, it will not contradict other Scripture. It will not stand just by itself. You don't have to, to uh, say, well, I believe that this shouldn't have been in the Bible. Amen. Those that try and say that miracles don't happen today, well, they say, well, Mark chapter 16 from the 17th verse on never should have been in the Bible. That's not pure wisdom. See, when you have to go to tearing the Bible out and stuff, you're in trouble. It's not pure. That's one of the first tests. In other words, it ought to be able to harmonize with the other things. It doesn't have any impurities in it that don't uh, harmonize with the rest of the Word of God. It's pure, then it's peaceable, and it's gentle, and it's easy to be entreated. Now, boy, that's quite a test to put on things. And did you know, have you all ever got revelation it wasn't easy to be entreated? Now, there's two ways to look at this. If the reason it's not easy to be entreated is because you're so grounded in your old religion... Well, then get your religion out. Amen. But I'm talking about when you're pure before the Lord. And the Bible says that the heart knows its own bitterness. You know whether you're approaching the Lord perfect heart or not. And you, if you're coming before the Lord saying, Father, I'm ready to drop anything. I just want the truth. I'll renounce it. I don't care. I'll let God be true and any man lie. Now, if that's your attitude and if you're pure in that, and yet if the revelation is still just hard to be entreated, something's wrong probably you are looking at it in a wrong way, and if you try and force that revelation, you're going to come up with the wrong thing, set it on the shelf, go on with what you do know, go on with studying the Word of God and come back to it. God will give you revelation further on. 
Amen? Because the word, this is a test that you can put to it. It'll be peaceable and gentle and easy to be entreated. And I can truthfully say that some of the biggest revelations God ever gave me, when they finally came, you know, it may have been over a year or two or three years worth of study or something like that, but when the revelation finally comes, it's just simple. It's so simple. It's so easy to be entreated. It's so easy that you wonder, how have I missed this thing all this time? Now, that's the way that God's wisdom is. But when you have to force these things, I guarantee you there's many people that what you're forcing is you're going against the witness of your spirit. There isn't any peace. There isn't any assurance. And many people just doggedly go ahead in those things, and you don't ever violate the leadership of your spirit. Amen, as you study the Word of God. So this is something that you have to realize, that these things come line upon line, precept upon precept, and you get them little by little, and if you're having trouble with it, then shelve it. Amen. Go on. And God will continue to give you revelation. Some other things I wanted to talk about is, like, for instance, never taking a Scripture out of context. And I don't want to spend much time on that. Most of you ought to know that already, that a Scripture should never, 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 never be taken out of context. If you're studying something topically and if you're trying to study on the subject of healing, you have to already know what the context is or if you don't, go back and read it because you're going to mess up. You're going to come up with an off-the-wall doctrine if you start just grabbing things out of context. For instance, you could turn over to the Scripture in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 26, where it says that Judas went and hung himself and then turn over to Luke 10, 37, where Jesus said, Go and do thou likewise and you'd be in trouble. Amen? <laughs> that is not rightly dividing the word of the truth. That's taking things out of context. And you've got to realize that that is not a proper method of Bible study. You've always got to take things in context. And if you'll do that, you can answer questions. Like, let me give you, for instance, on this. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll illustrate it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is a passage, that, this is the only passage of Scripture I have ever heard anybody even halfway effectively used to say that the gift of miracles, speaking in tongues, and things like this passed away with the apostles. And they use 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in verse 9 where it says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And in verse 8 up there it says that, that uh, tongues shall cease and knowledge shall vanish away. And they say that that's going to happen when that which is perfect has come. And I've heard people talk that the, word, that the thing that is perfect is the Word of God. Now, here's another Bible truth. And that is, don't ever make assumptions from the Word of God unless you can verify them by Scriptures. Because they made the assumption that the Word of God is that which is perfect. Well, now, I agree. The Word of God is perfect. But is that the perfect thing that it's talking of here? And you see, that's how so many people have been deceived by this because they say that which is perfect is the Word of God. Everybody would agree with that. Sure, that which is perfect is the Word of God. But is that the perfect thing that this is talking about? No, and you can verify it. We'll take it in context in just a minute. But I want to make this point that you never take an assumption unless it's backed up by the Word of God. And I tell you, this is something that just rubs me the wrong way and I'm not criticizing, but I'm just saying I wish sometimes some of these preachers come out with great revelations. And it sounds good, and I like it, but the fallacy with the whole thing is, they say, well, now we know, and they say this, and then they start using Scripture to build on it. But you see that first principle they put down. I say, all right, where do we know that from? I don't know that. Where's the Scripture for that? And I have to just throw out or shelve or put away all of the rest of the good things that they've said because the foundation principle they use, they didn't back it up with Scripture at all. Are you all following what I'm saying there? I hear lots of people do that. Lots of people come up and say this or say that just off the hand like we know. Well, if you know, where do you know from? 
And we as ministers are guilty of that sometimes, taking for granted that people know this or that, and we just throw something out. You need to verify what you know. Where is it found? Where is the Scripture for it? And things like that. You don't take any assumption for granted. Right? And so, people have said that which is perfect is the Word of God. You can, you can do away with that by looking in verse 8. It says, Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. At the same time that tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish away. Well, out of Daniel, it says that in the last times, knowledge shall increase. People will run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That's a prophecy of the last days. So that right there shows you knowledge hasn't ceased yet. And so, that which is perfect hasn't come yet. And you read on down in verse... Uh, 11, it says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. And they say through that that the gifts of the Spirit and miracles, speaking in tongues and all this stuff is for childish people. And when you grow up, you don't need that. I had somebody just recently tell me that speaking in tongues is the least gift. Now that's another one of those assumptions. Who said it was the least gift? Well, it was listed last in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Big deal. Did it mean that the order it was listed in was inspired? No. It didn't. You see, that's an assumption that the Word of God doesn't back up. Even if you thought it was the least gift. You know, it's like a rung on a ladder. If you want to get up here to, I want to get on the top of this ladder. Well, how do you get there? You start at the bottom rung. Amen. And all these people that have progressed past speaking in tongues never hit that rung on the ladder. They skipped it. And they think they're more mature. Well, if you're more mature, how do you get there? You get there line upon line and precept upon precept. Even if you believe speaking in tongues was the least, that's where you got to start, amen. Until you get it, don't sit there and discount it. Somebody hadn't got it, hadn't got any business saying it's the least gift, and then I've got something better. You don't skip over stuff like that. Amen. But in verse 12, it says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then, face to face. What's the then that it's talking about? When that which is perfect has come. See, you take it in context. I'm seeing through a glass darkly, but then when that which is perfect has come, I will see face to face. Have we seen face to face yet? No, that's talking about the second return of the Lord. Now I know in part, but then when that which is perfect has come, I'll know all things, even as also I am known. That's not talking about now. That's talking about when that which is perfect has come at the second return of the Lord, when you receive your glorified body and you got a perfect body, you don't need speaking in tongues anymore. You don't need miracles because your body doesn't get sick. You don't need all of these things because, man, that which is perfect has come. But this very passage of Scripture that many people use to say that speaking in tongues has passed away teaches just the opposite and verifies that until that which is perfect, the second coming of the Lord, your glorified body comes, tongues will never pass away. It'll be here until that which is perfect has come. And you see, through taking something in context, you can turn it around and use the exact scripture a lot of people would use to disprove it to prove the very thing that they're fighting against. Y'all see that? You should never take anything out of context. Another example is First, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh and people use the word infirmity to say his thorn in the flesh is sickness. Well, again, the Bible is the best commentary upon itself. The Bible will explain itself. And you see here again, people make assumptions. The word infirmity has to mean sickness, right? No, no it doesn't. If you, look, if you look at infirmity up in the dictionary, infirmity means lack or inadequacy. And you can verify this. Again, don't take the dictionary by itself. If, if that is a true statement, if infirmity can mean lack or inadequacy, where is the Scripture that verifies that? Well, you can look over in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, where it says, The Spirit itself helpeth our infirmity. Is that talking about He's helping in your sicknesses? 
No, because there's a colon and it says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. And it lists what an infirmity is. This peanut brain is an infirmity. Did you know that? And the Bible says that groaning in the Spirit is to help your infirmity. Did you know that Jesus groaned in the Spirit in in John chapter 11 twice? He groaned in the Spirit. Jesus groaned in the Spirit to help his infirmity. Infirmity does not mean sickness. Infirmity doesn't mean sin. Infirmity means lack or inadequacy. In Jesus' physical body, it was a sinless physical body, it was pure and it was holy, but it was physical, and it is impossible for a physical, finite mind to be able to perfectly operate in the wisdom and the ability of God. Jesus had to bypass his mind, and he operated and did the things that he did through the Spirit. When he walked under that tree and looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down, that wasn't his brain that said that. Amen? That came right out of His Spirit. It was a gift of the Spirit, just like when we operate in the gifts of the Spirit. And when Jesus approached Lazarus, a man that had been dead four days, saw the unbelief and all of these things, His physical mind with physical knowledge could not receive a person being raised from the dead that had been dead four days and already embalmed. Now, is that to say Jesus was sinful? No. He had a human physical mind that was just as tempted and limited in its ability to comprehend and receive things as yours and mine is. Except ours have been polluted. His wasn't polluted. But even a sinless physical mind still had limitations. And he groaned in the Spirit to help his infirmity. So anyway, there's two or three references that show you that infirmity means more than sickness. And then you go and take that in context, and if you'll look back in First Corinthians, I mean Second Corinthians chapter eleven, let's look at some of these real quick. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Verse 7 is where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul was talking, and and remember this, this is another thing that will help you, that when the Bible was written, it was not written in chapter and verses. God did not inspire chapter and verses. Amen? And so many times people cut off the 12th chapter and study it as a separate thing. This was written as one letter. And in context, right in the, you know, the exact paragraph where Paul was preaching from, talking about his thorn in the flesh, if you'll back up into the 11th chapter, in verse 30, he says, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. And if you'll look over here, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 9, he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Chapter 12, verse 9, and chapter 11, verse 30, use the exact same terminology, glorying in infirmities. And so, before you get a preconceived idea of what infirmity is, look and see what an infirmity was in the 11th chapter. That's in context. That's in the same setting. And if you'll back up, he just lists what he considered an infirmity. Starting in verse um, 24, it says of the Jews, Five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often. In perils of water. In perils of robbers. In perils by mine own countrymen. In perils by the heathen. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and painfulness. In watchings often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn? 
concern not. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. He just listed them, and none of those things were sicknesses. The only thing that could even be va- uh, vaguely construed as being a sickness is in verse 27 where it says weariness and painfulness. But you know what? A guy that had been stoned and left for dead could have some weariness and painfulness and not be sick. Amen? I mean, it stands to reason, doesn't it? There's no way anybody can say that his infirmity was sickness. Matter of fact, if you take it in context, you'd have to say that his infirmity was persecution. And then, again, another principle of the Word of God, we've already touched on this, is always cross-reference, compare. Where are other scriptures? You see, he was writing to Jewish people. And did you know that there is terminology in the Old Covenant about thorn in the flesh? And he was writing to people that understood that terminology. And you can turn over to Numbers chapter 33, I believe it's verse 55. Let me look at this. Numbers 33, 55, he's talking about drive out the heathen out of the land before you don't leave anybody, not the children, not any of their cattle or anything. It says in verse 55, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. And you can look that up. It's repeated again in Joshua chapter 23, verse 13, and Judges chapter 2, verse 3. So there are two, three Old Testament scriptures that are referring back to a thorn in the flesh or a thorn in the side. And the terminology is not talking about sickness and disease, but rather about persecution from the ungodly. And without, I've already taught on Paul's thorn in the flesh without trying to, but his thorn in the flesh, I believe, was just simply demonic persecution. There was an angel, a messenger sent from Satan to buffet him. And he asked the Lord to get rid of it, but you see, you aren't redeemed from persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You aren't redeemed from persecution. And the Lord told him, says, look, Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. When he was stoned and left for dead, he got up. The disciples stood around about him. He got up and rose up, and the next day walked 20-something miles into the next town. Guess where the next town was that he went to right after he was stoned and left for dead? Anybody know? Where was he stoned? Lystra. Lystra. Which is in where? Galatia. Galatia. Guess where it was that Paul wrote about his weakness, which was in the flesh, that they didn't despise and abhor? I was in Galatia. And people say it must have been his runny, puffy eyes, an ancient, rare disease. But do you know if a guy was stoned and left for dead and the next day walked 23 miles into the next city, he may have had a puffy eye. And when he says, you're willing to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me, it might be because his was bruised. doesn't mean he had a rare, ancient disease. You see, if you study the Word of God, you wouldn't come to some of those weird conclusions like what people do. But it comes because they don't take things in context. Many people go to the Word of God with their mind made up what it says, and they try and find a scripture that will verify it. And if you do that, you're in trouble. Boy, you've got to let God be true and every man lie. And don't go to the Word of God trying to make it say something. You go to it and find out what it says. Amen? Amen. I tell you, that's important. And there are some people today that I agree totally with what they're saying. They're preaching the faith message, they're preaching the truth, but the way they get there, I believe, violates a bunch of principles in the Word of God.
they'll find a scripture that looks a little bit contrary, and they will spend two hours explaining that scripture away when if you'd have just looked at it in the proper way, it supports and verifies what you're saying, but they violated all the principles of the Word of God, and they're teaching other people to approach the Word in the same way. And that's not good. No, we need to have a reverence for the Word of God. You know, I appreciate Wayne Hart. I appreciate other ministers. I appreciate these guys. But you know what? My faith isn't in them, and I'm not depending on Wayne Hart to keep me from going into bondage. <laughs> I love him, and I'm going to receive with the gift that God's given. But you know, there are so many people today that they're depending upon their pastor to keep them on the straight and narrow. Use him, but don't abuse him. This is the thing that God has given us to keep you straight. The thing that is given, you know, study to show yourself approved so you can rightly divide the word of truth. The word is the thing that's going to set you free. And you cannot begin to start just chunking this out and saying, well, I believe this is mistranslated. I don't believe this should have been in there. And, you know, I, I don't believe it means this. And let's say this and let's do this. Boy, I tell you, I just got more reverence for the word of God than that. Amen. And if it says it, brothers and sisters, whether it lines up with what I say or not, I'm going to change what I say rather than make the word change what it's saying. You've got to learn some of those foundation principles, amen, that the Word does not contradict itself. Let me share one last thing. One last thing about the Word contradicting itself. Like, for instance, let's look over in Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, the Scripture says, Thou shalt not kill. And that's familiar to most of us. But over in the New Covenant, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, keep your finger over there and compare these two. Look at them. In Matthew 19, verse 18, Jesus answered this man and said, uh, this man said, which? And Jesus answered him saying, thou shalt do no murder. When Jesus quoted Exodus chapter 20, Jesus quoted it as thou shalt do no murder. And did you know I've heard people come out and say that that right there shows the word of God contradicts itself. Jesus said murder and the old covenant said kill. Well, no, they aren't the same. Murder and killing are not the same. There is a difference. Why, why was it quoted different? Doesn't that prove that the Word contradicts itself? Well, if you're narrow-minded, I guess you can look at it that way. But to me, the Word of God, as we, we mentioned this the other night, that there is no way that you could put all of the revelation in here about God that there is. And just the way that something like this is quoted a little bit differently can give you tremendous insights. And I've heard some people say, well, that it should have been translated murder over in Exodus chapter 20. That under the New Covenant, it was translated murder all the time. Well, that's not true. Amen. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I got a Greek concordance. Amen. And this word that's used in Matthew 19:18 was used 12 times in the New Testament. It was translated murder one time, kill ten times, and slay one time. So even under the New Covenant, it's translated as kill, and this is the only example where it's not translated kill. You look over in uh, the other examples, where there's, like for instance in Mark chapter 10, the example that Cliff used last night about the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, and he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments, and he says, I've done all of them. Or he said, which? And he said, uh, thou shalt not kill. It's the exact same thing that's quoted right here in a different gospel. And anyway, to some people, see, that may be confusing or something, but you can learn a tremendous amount through something like this. Because 
For instance, the word murder, if you look it up in the dictionary, the word murder is uh, intent to kill with malice aforethought. In other words, premeditated murder, intending to do something harmful, you planned it and done it. And murder can only apply to human beings. Kill is is, uh, ceasing to exist anything, whether it's an animal, whether it's a plant, or anything that you do that you're responsible for, and it can be intentional or unintentional. Kill is a very broad word. Murder is very narrow. And if you just translated everything in the Word of God, thou shalt do no murder, did you know that would let off such things as negligent homicide? I've got a friend that's in the Food and Drug Administration that I was talking to not long ago, and he was talking about how he was checking out these poison mushrooms and stuff that have been going around. And he goes in and inspects these places, and he says, it is amazing. These places, he said, lots of them, they aren't intentionally putting out bad food. But they've got inventories of food that were old two years ago, and they purposely are not checking them and running quality controls on it the way they should because they're making money off of it. It is not intent to kill, but it's intent to make a buck even if I have to minimize something to do it. Now you see, if you combine kill and murder together and use the word as a commentary upon itself and put the two together, you could see that that would be a violation of God's standard. But if it was translated murder, did you know they haven't murdered in a sense? And you lose a lot, brothers and sisters, when you sit there and you don't let the word be a commentary upon itself. When you don't sit there and compare scriptures with other scriptures, you can lose a lot. In the Gospels, did you know that you can profit tremendously? Like Mark chapter 4, where it talks about the parable of the sower sowing the seed, and it talks about the hundredfold, the one that brings forth some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. You can get tremendous blessing from Mark chapter 4 about that. I preach on that. That's the one that I use mainly. But in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, the same thing is being told by another writer, and in that instance it says, And these are they which bring forth fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold, with patience. And boy, when you put that with patience with it, that opens up literally a whole new door, see, in the parable of the sower sowing the word. You can gain a lot from it. When you look in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus spoke to the fig tree and cursed it and said, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever. You can gain a lot from that. But when you read it over in Matthew chapter 21, you find out that it says that the fig tree withered, presently withered away. The word presently means at the present. In other words, it was an immediate thing. It withered away instantly, but they didn't see the results for nearly 24 hours. Now that looks confusing, but when you read it again and put them together, you find out in Mark chapter 11, it says that it withered from the roots up. God touched the roots, and the manifestation didn't come for like 12 or 20 hours or something, but it was done the moment he said it. And you can learn a lot from that. It's the same thing. When the Lord says by His stripes you're healed, you're healed. And brother, you are healed. Whether you can see it or not, the healing has taken place. And then you shall see it afterwards. What Mark chapter 11 verse 24 is saying. Y'all see that? But you couldn't get that from looking at one passage of Scripture by itself. I believe that's the reason the three Gospels are given because Jesus' life is such a powerful life. There's so much in it that you couldn't get it. One Gospel writer simply could not receive the wisdom and the anointing and the revelation of God good enough to write it down by himself. Man, he took three and put them together to complement and to add together. They don't contradict each other. Rather, they support each other. And if you would like read the parable of the sower and then read it in Matthew 13 and in Luke chapter 8 and put all three of them together, you'll get more out of it than you will out of one of them. And if you put all these things together, you can gain tremendous insight, and you can do the same thing throughout the entire Word of God. Amen? Amen. The whole crux of all this Bible study is you just got to be full of the Word of God. Amen? Amen.
You can't do it a five-minute shot at a time. It's got to be an entire lifetime. An hour at a time won't do it. You've got to develop an entire lifestyle to where you are continually dwelling and living in the Word of God at all times, where you are meditating. And did you know when I'm out on secular things, I hear stuff over the news that spark things on the inside of me that I've been meditating on, and maybe some carnal man comes along and says something. Somebody says, I just can't believe God would speak to you that way. Well, God used Mordaki one time, and it wasn't spiritual, amen, to speak to Balaam. You can get a lot of good out of things. You know, a lot of the Bible's been written looking at nature. You know, Jesus used the example of behold the fowls of the air and the lilies of the field and stuff. You can get a lot through nature. If you are keeping your mind stayed upon the Lord, the Lord can take nearly anything to instruct you. I remember a time that I was, uh, we were at Canyon City going through, uh, well, it wasn't Canyon City, but it was out of Royal Gorge out in that area. And we were, uh, I took Peter to the bathroom. He was about two years old or something. He was getting real independent. And he didn't talk till he was three. And so he wasn't talking yet, but he was very independent. And as we were coming out of that bathroom, he wanted to open the door. And I mean, he got both hands on that door. He went to yanking. He kicked. And you'd have to know Peter to appreciate this. But he kicked that door. He grunted. He groaned. He pulled. He did everything on that door. And he couldn't get it open. And then he looked up to me, and he didn't talk, but he communicated. And he, you know, in effect, was wanting me to open the door for him. But he had both of his hands right around that knob, and I couldn't get to the knob. If I'd have opened the door, it was hard to open. I would have had to put quite a bit of squeeze on it, and I would have hurt his hand by grabbing that door. And so I just stood there. And he looked at me, and I could tell he was wondering, what are you doing? Don't you know that I want this door open? And I just stood there. I didn't say a thing. I just looked at him. Does ever feel like how God responds to you sometimes? <laughs> And anyway, finally he let go of it, and I opened the door. And as soon as I did, I told him, I said, Now, Peter, see, if you just let go and let trust me sometimes to do it, I can do it, but I can't do it when you are sitting there holding on to the front. I hadn't any sooner said that than the Lord began to speak to me, and he said, Amy, that's exactly the reason I hadn't solved that problem you've been praying about, because you won't let go of the thing. You're holding on to it. And he says, you have not cast your care over on me, 1 John 5, 7. And he says, you've got that thing. And he said, the only way I can get at it is to get through you. And he says, you let go. Man, you know I cast my care over on the Lord, and we saw that thing taken care of. And I learned something. Man, you can learn something to anything if you're open to it, if your mind is stayed upon it. The Holy Spirit is our teacher to lead us into all truth, bring, us, bring all things to our remembrance whatsoever Jesus has spoken. But He's the teacher. You've got to go to school, amen, to be able to get taught. I don't care how much He's been assigned to teach you unless you're in class. You won't get it. And the Holy Ghost is sent to teach us, but you have to be open to Him. You have to keep your mind stayed upon Him. Amen. And anyway, if you'll just use some of these things, and again I say that this is not, you know, thus saith the Lord on some of these things. These are just things that I've used that I believe are scriptural principles that have benefited me, and you can apply them in your life a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of things that we didn't get into. There's a lot of things we hadn't talked about. But I believe that anyway, this will give you enough start that you could really get into the Word of God and you could start profiting and gaining from the Word of God in a way that you never have before. I believe it's really beneficial. And it'll help you. Amen? Amen. Can I receive that? Amen. Anybody learn anything about how to study the Bible? <laughs> Praise God. If you really learned it, put it to work. Hallelujah. Let's stand up. I want to ask today, I know that uh, most of you have been here every morning by the indication of your hands in our nearly every service. And you may have already been ministered to, but if there's anybody here today that has any need, 
whether it's physical for healing in your body or prayer for anything. If you would like agreement, we'll lay hands on you and believe God with you. Amen. So anybody here that has a need today that you would like for us to pray over you with? Anybody? Praise the Lord. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net, and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.